Dr. Edward, excuse me, Dr. Edgar N. Jackson, uh, he was ordained as a, as a pastor, but, but most of Dr. Jackson's work was as a professor and an author on topics of grief, mourning, uh, healthy ways of dealing uh, with the death of loved ones. And Dr. Jackson, most of his stuff's out of print now, but Dr. Jackson describes grief this way. He says, grief is a young widow trying to raise her three children alone. Grief is the man so filled with shocked uncertainty and confusion that he strikes out at the nearest person. Grief is a mother walking daily to a nearby cemetery to stand quietly and alone a few minutes before going about the tasks of her day. She knows that part of her is in the cemetery just as part of her is in her daily tasks. Grief is the silent, knife-like terror and sadness that comes a hundred times a day when you start to speak to someone who's no longer there. Grief is the emptiness that comes when you eat alone after eating with another for many years. Grief is teaching yourself to go to bed without saying goodnight to the one who had died. Grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they're not and never will be again. Grief is a whole cluster of adjustments, apprehensions, and uncertainties that strike life in its forward progress and make it difficult to redirect the energies of life. I found that uh, powerful stuff. I think we all can relate to that in some fashion, some more than others. But if you can't relate to that now, you're on the clock. Because grief comes for all of us. It is part of the human, dish, human condition because death is part of the human condition. Where we pick up in the story of the books of Samuel this morning, we pick up at a time of national mourning because the, the, the first family, the royal family of Israel has been decimated. Last week we saw that, uh, or in the last couple of weeks, we saw that King Saul was killed in a battle against the Philistines. His oldest son, Jonathan, as well as all but one of the rest of his sons were also killed. And then we saw David respond initially uh, with intense grief. And today we're not going to read any more of the story of Second Samuel, any more of the plot line. But we are going to be in the book because today we're going to read a, a lament it's a grief poem, a grief song that David wrote. It's heartfelt, it's touching, it is a moving tribute to Saul and Jonathan, and that might be difficult for us to tell. Because the passage of 3,000 years and the difference in language and culture, those things have a tendency to sort of wash some of the feeling away from modern readers. But this, what we're going to read today, would have really pulled at the heartstrings of everyone in Israel. You understand the feeling 
of a song like this, even if you might not get those feelings from this song. But I'll bet most of us have a song like this. I don't know what it is for you. It might be, I can only imagine, or uh, I've never been more homesick till now. If you don't know that one, look it up later. Another Mercy Me one. Uh, For some of the rest of us, it might be, He stopped loving her today. Or go rest high on that mountain. Or everybody hurts. Or tears in heaven. Or maybe it's that Sarah McLaughlin song in the eyes, in the arms of an angel. Is that what it is? Especially when it's played with the, the footage of the battered dogs in the shelters late at night on TV. You know what I mean? But probably most of us have that song. Maybe it was one that was played at your loved one's funeral that just gives you that lump in your throat. That's what this would have been 3,000 years ago in Israel, whether that feeling gets conveyed to us or not. Let's read this together. 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 17, we'll read the rest of that chapter. The, uh, it's formatted as Hebrew poetry, which doesn't come across great in the screen. So if the format looks a little goofy, that's why. So then David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan, his son. And he told them to teach the sons of Judah the song of the bow. Behold, it is written in the book of Jashar. Your beauty, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Or the daughters of the Philistines will rejoice. The daughters of the uncircumcised will exult. O mountains of Gilboa, let not dew or rain be on you, nor fields of offerings. For there shall, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, and the sword of Saul did not return empty. Saul and Jonathan beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. Verse 24, O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. Jonathan is slain on your high places. I'm distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. The song itself doesn't begin until verse 19. So the first couple of verses are, are something of an introduction. We learn four things in verse 17 and 18. We learn um, that what follows is a lament. More on this later. But a lament is a thoughtful and passionate expression of grief and sadness. It's not the, that spontaneous mourning that punches you in the gut when you first get the terrible news. It's a thoughtful, intentional response to that later. Uh, Second, we're told that it's David that that wrote this and that the sadness will be about Saul and Jonathan. 
um, the king of Israel, his oldest son, David's best friend. Third, we're told that David ordered that this song be taught to everyone in Judah. Uh, we're also told the title, I think, by the way, it was called like the song of the bow or just the bow. And finally, we're told it was written down in the book of Jashar. That's a book, nobody has a copy of that. It's been lost in history, but it was apparently a long-running record of military exploits in Israel. Um, and I, we know that because it was mentioned in the book of Joshua. So for hundreds of years, they've been writing down military history in this. But that's the, that's the introduction. Uh, the, 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 the poem or the song itself starts in verse 19. Where David writes, this is the main idea. The beauty, your Bible might say the glory or the majesty, or your Bible might say something about, something like deer or gazelle. Uh, the word that can get translated either way. Symbolically, this is about beauty or glory or majesty. Imagine a picture of this massive buck standing like silhouetted by the sunrise. That's a picture of majesty or beauty or glory. David says, the glory of Israel is what got killed on those hills. And then he says, how the mighty have fallen. We talked last week some about like, how can David mourn for Saul, who was so mean to him for so long? You know, listen to last week's sermon for a discussion on that. But Israel before King Saul really didn't have much in the way of a national identity. They had a common religion, but Israel had always, or for a long time, had been loosely connected independent tribes, uh, ruled by regional judges. Saul is the guy God used to unify Israel into what it was supposed to be, one people, one entity. And throughout this, David says, we're way better off because we had Saul. He, the royal family, him and his son Jonathan, are like the glory of national Israel, and they were killed in humiliating fashion. So that's what we are mourning. You've probably heard this line. You ever hear somebody say or read somebody write, Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Three times that'll be said in this poem. This is where that line came from. It's very famous now. It's said, it's like sarcastically now a lot of times when some prominent person has something of a fall from grace. But this is where it comes from. It's very famous. So that's the main idea. That's what we're going to be mourning. The, the glory, the beauty of Israel, its royal family being destroyed. The body of the poem starts in, in verse 20. And I think David has, does something of a flashback here. Starting in verse 20, David flashes back into his heart space or his head space where he was at when he first got the terrible news of what had happened to Saul and Jonathan. When David learned that those darn Philistines destroyed the army of Israel and killed our king and my friend Jonathan, 
Do you think he was angry as well as sad? You bet your life. You understand these two verses better than you think too. If you're old enough, do you remember 9-11? Remember seeing footage on the news of people in Middle Eastern countries celebrating the collapse of the Twin Towers? How'd that make you feel? That's David. It's exactly what he does here. There's something of the stages of grief. He had denial last week. He's anger right here where he says, these are Philistine cities. Don't talk about this in Gath. Shut your cake hole in Ashkelon. I don't want to hear reports of the celebrations that are going on over there. He's furious. That's why I say this is David screaming into the void. He writes this like it's an order. But he knows it's not going to be obeyed. Like if you were yelling at CNN back then, why don't those people can it? That's what this is. His blood is boiling. Then he says about the mountains of Gilboa, that's the scene where Saul and and Jonathan died. He yells at those mountains, I hope nothing ever grows on you ever again. I want that to be a barren moonscape. He's not ready to go out to the highway and put the nice cross. He doesn't want anything to grow back there ever. That's where David was at, like in his heart, in his head, when he first first got the news. And we can understand that. In verses 22 and 23, this is where David gives something of a eulogy for the fallen, Saul and Jonathan. Our English word eulogy comes from, uh, from the Greek word uh, eulogizo. Literally, it means to give a good word. Usually, it's translated in the New Testament, blessing. A eulogy is... Is just, uh, it's accurate information, but it focuses on the positive. That's what, that's what David does for, for Saul and Jonathan here. Verse 22, he says, that's Saul and Jonathan. Their weapons never turned around and ran from the enemy, and they always hit their marks. Um, in verse 23, it says, John, Saul and Jonathan were greatly loved. And he, he focuses on their loyalty to one another. Those two were always together and inseparable, we might say. Even in, even in death, they were together, he says. The swifter than eagle, eagle stronger than a lion's bit is, again, it's about battlefield prowess. Now, you might want to read those kind words about Saul and think what? Eh, I don't know, David. <laughs> Saul seemed kind of like a jerk to me. You're not wrong, but this is a eulogy. This is appropriate. This is the way to speak about the dead, right? You're not going to come here to a funeral and hear me start the eulogy by saying, let me tell you the five worst things this gal ever did. Right, that would be completely inappropriate. Let me tell you the three things that drove me the most nuts about this guy. 
David speaks well of the dead because that's what we should do. It's not the time to take the pot shots about our political opponents or whatever we do now. Um, And at one time, this is accurate. At one time, Saul was beloved. He was incredibly popular. He was the tallest, most handsomestest man in all of Israel, we were told. In verse 24, this is is David, I think, stepping into the suddenly vacant uh, ceremonial head of state. You know what I mean by that? Um, World leaders, political leaders, some of their duties, like if you think about it, they don't actually do anything, but they can still be really important. When our presidents go and, and take a wreath, and lay that at the tomb of the unknowns. Like, it's not like they're starting some valuable program, right, or or getting a new law passed. But that ceremonial stuff can be important. It's valuable. David is kind of stepping into that. He's kind of ordering Israel to mourn. This is where he's lowering, he's saying, like our president might, to lower all the flags to half-staff over Saul. And then he, this is where he says, we're all better off collectively because we had Saul. Verse 25, the first part of verse 25, I think is especially uh, effective poetically. David was a tremendous poet because he's talking about, hey, nationally we should mourn, and then all of a sudden this doesn't really seem to fit. He just kind of yells out again, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of battle. And it's a little bit like if you're reading this, didn't we already cover that? This is how grief works though, doesn't it? You get this. After the, you get the terrible news, the, the initial wave of mourning has happened and you've kind of pulled yourself together and you're doing better. And then the doorbell rings and somebody else has come over to visit. And what happens? It's like, here we go again with the waterworks. Or you've pulled yourself together, you're doing pretty good, and you start talking about, hey, we're way better off because we had this, and then you just remember that one thing, and it just hit, the finality of this hits you again, and you're right back to the beginning. That's what happens to David right there. I mean, this might have been written 3,000 years ago, but it's still the human condition. I can't believe this happened. It's not supposed to be this way. Now, before we go on, I, I really want you to notice a difference here between the words Saul gets and what we're about to see, what Jonathan gets. In verse 24, David calls on all of Israel as a nation to respectfully mourn their king that they are, if you think about it, we're better off because we had Saul. But then when it's time to talk about Jonathan, his best friend, Jonathan gets words that are much more personal. They're way more warm. They communicate uh, more pain 
also. It's been said that sorrow is deepest where the love is the greatest. And that's true here. In this translation, David writes, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I grieve over you, my brother, Jonathan. You were very dear to me. Your love was more special to me than the love of of women. Now, at the top of the screen there, David says something that's not literally true. He says, Jonathan lies slain on your high places. By the time David wrote this, by the time David got the news, Jonathan's body wasn't even, Jonathan's body's not still laying up there. Why does David say Jonathan's, his body lies slain on the high places when it's not really there? Because when he closes his eyes, that's still what he pictures. It's Jonathan. David tells the nation, hey, we should lower the flags and speak kindly and mourn of Saul. But with Jonathan, he says, you're like my brother. Saul doesn't get that. Now, because of what certain factions within uh, Christendom, I don't even want to use the word church, but because of what certain people who still call themselves Christians say about the relationship between Jonathan and Saul, Jonathan and David, I want to tell you, there is nothing written in here that indicates that their relationship was a homosexual one. Okay? Because uh, those with that, advancing that agenda as their agenda, they like to hold up the relationship between Saul, excuse me, between uh, David and Jonathan, and say there, there's the, an example of what they call biblical homosexuality, and there is no such thing. And that is not what, this, what David's talking about. This is not, back in the introduction, you remember who David said was supposed to, or who we're told David ordered to, to read this and to learn this poem? The whole nation, right? Teach this to everyone. Everyone should learn this song and sing this song. David did not out his relationship with Jonathan in a song that was to be memorized and sung by everyone in the country, okay? So what is this? He's not saying uh, that your physical love, you know, I preferred that. It's not what this is. So what is it? In what way was Jonathan's love more special even than the love of women? Here's what this is. And in that day, in that culture, men and women didn't get married because they had fallen in love and they just couldn't bear the thought of doing life without one another. I'm not saying that's wrong for us to do. I'm just telling us not, it's not the way it was done back then. Marriages were arranged for the benefit of the family, the clan, the tribe, and in some cases, the nation. They were like political alliances, as we'll see moving forward with David. Um, Women had usually little to no say in who they married. In a lot of cases, the young man had little to no say, but oftentimes he had much more say than, than the woman who had no status, zero. 
So here's what, here's what David is saying. What, well, let me say this. In one of those arranged marriages, though, did sometimes a husband and wife grow to love one another very much? Yes, of course. And even though in that culture, um, and this is wrong, but in that culture, when the, the wife, a woman, had no status, like no social identity hardly, were there times when a, when a husband, even though he could do whatever he wanted, would give up his right to do whatever he wanted for the benefit of his wife that had a much lower status than him? Yes, okay. So here's what David's saying about Jonathan. Jonathan's saying, even though, let's be honest, I'm David. Here's someone that should have been my Lord, master. He was my superior. And he did something almost no one else could. He gave up his position, laid that down for me. And so when David says, he loved me in a way I couldn't even be loved by a woman, it's because literally no woman could have done that the way Jonathan did. It's been said, sorrow is deepest where love is the greatest. And that's why David mourns his friend. David concludes by sort of restating the main idea again. There's that famous line again for the third time, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, he personifies Saul and Jonathan as the, the, like the tip of the spear. The weapons of, of warfare for Israel have been destroyed. And the song ends. That's the song. What, what do we learn? What can we take with us? I want to speak the rest of our time about some things I think we can learn from paying attention to David, what he writes in this lament and the other ones. I think David's life and the way he grieves teaches us that grief, it's not merely unavoidable. It, it's good and it's healthy. Now, don't hear me wrong. The fact that you find yourself grieving isn't good, or what causes you to grieve isn't good. It's probably very bad. Death is an enemy. If this world were still perfect the way God created originally, we wouldn't have death. Like, write this note down. Death is bad. <laughs> but it is good to grieve when we are faced with it. And I think it's important to say that because sometimes there can be great resistance to mourning, especially like out here in our culture and especially amongst those of us who happen to be boys, <laughs> like men. How many of you have heard something like this? You've gotten the bad news. Everybody's had their cry. Then we get the family all together and someone says something like, well, he wouldn't want us moping around here all sad and stuff, right? Which gender of a person said that first? You know why? Because what he's really saying is, 
I don't want to be sad. And if you guys would quit it, that would help me to not be sad. I don't want to show anything that seems like weakness. I just want to move on. Now, I'm not, for the rest of our time, I'm not, I'm not talking about that, that spontaneous sadness that's unavoidable and uncontrollable when we get the awful news. Few of us can help that. I'm talking about that this process of ongoing grief. It's different for everyone. No two people need to do it the same, spend the most time, do it in the same ways. But if nothing else this morning, I want to sort of give you permission and actually encourage you to grieve when the time comes. It's normal. It's good for you. And for Pete's sake, it does not mean you're soft or anything. Here's how this passage teaches us this. David fell apart, tore his clothes, grieved, cried. David, okay? You might think of yourself as pretty tough, and you might be, but hear me. You ain't David. How many bears and lions have you killed with hand tools? Because the Bible tells us he got at least two of them. David killed trained warriors in droves, in hand-to-hand combat. But when somebody loved died, he fell apart, he cried, he screamed into the void, and then he he wrote poems about the process. Okay, I'm I'm not saying you might not be able to handle your business if a little fracas breaks out, but you ain't David. And he did this. And I think we can learn from that. So grief is good when the time comes. And I want to encourage you in the rest of our time to lament as needed. To lament as needed. Sometimes when we get that awful news, sometimes that initial waterfall is all some of us need. It really is. And that's okay. But sometimes falling apart for a few minutes just doesn't do it. So when the initial sadness has punched your lights out for a few minutes, but that grief just remains, we need to try something else. And I want to encourage you this morning to try to lament when that time comes. I don't mean for the sermon to be the, uh, uh, all you need to know for, for your grief to be gone. That's not what I mean. I just want to give you one thing to lament. Lamenting, again, is not that waterfall that that you can't help. Lamenting is something that's intentional. It's not involuntary, something that happens to you. Lamenting is something you do intentionally in response to what happened to you. It's a thoughtful, 
vehicle, if I want to define a lament, and I stole this and I should give him credit, but I didn't write it down, so sorry. To lament, a lament is a thoughtful vehicle for expressing grief and anger and questions and bewilderment. I want to encourage you to write it out. It can be very helpful to get down on paper what you are actually like struggling with and against because of this grief. In other words, instead of continuing to struggle just against this fog of depression, I want to try to weed through that and write down some actual specific things that maybe I've even been scared to consider and write it down. It's helpful. I want to give you some examples. David is the the Bible's great lamenter. It doesn't even have to be death. One time David was struggling because he kept getting stabbed in the back. He kept getting betrayed. And he decided, I need to lament this. So he wrote Psalm 12. Read with me how it starts. Help me, Lord, for no one's faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They might flatter you with their lips, but they're harboring deception in your hearts behind your back. Okay, once again, that is not literally true. So what's it doing in our Bibles? That's how David felt. David said, I'm so sick of getting stabbed in the back by people around me in my administration. They're supposed to be helping me. So he sits down. You know what I'm dealing with? God, I feel like nobody is honest. I feel like all the good people are gone. He just writes it down. Specifically, here's what I'm struggling with. That's what you do. That's what I'm encouraging you to do. If it might be, you might be ready for this right now. You might want to keep a note on this and you'll be ready for it someday. So maybe I have to go in and write down, uh, God, I can't believe you would allow my daughter to die. My brother was my rock. He was my best friend. And since he's been gone, I, like, I feel like I'm only standing uh, one leg on solid ground and the other one's sort of in the abyss. What are you struggling with? What I'm really struggling with is my regret that that person is gone before I had a chance to. I write down, uh, I still find myself talking to my wife before I remember she's not here. God, this feels like an amputation. I don't know what it is, but try to wade through the fog and, and be as specific as you can with what really is tearing you up. And just write it down. And you, it does not have to be good poetry. In fact, for I beg of you, do not try to make it rhyme. You will ruin it. Okay? Just 
right? Honey, what rhymes with tissues? What? No, don't do any of that. Don't be cute, be honest. By itself, this exercise can help, but it can also, as you isolate these baseline feelings, it can give you what you need to take to the one who can help. That's what David always did in the Psalms. So like this one here, everybody stabs me in the back. He takes that specifically to God so that he can consider how God actually answers that. Right? Everybody stabs me in my back and it doesn't seem like there's any good people left. He puts that down so that he can get to this. Oh yeah, you, oh Lord, are the one who, who keeps the needy safe. You are the one who protects us forever from the wicked. The wicked who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. Some of us need to write Psalm 12, 7 and 8 down and meditate on this for a bit. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had in the last two years about the wickedness of the world and what it's doing to us internally. Lament that. David did. But then take that to the one who promises to keep us. Psalm 13. David's ready to lament. Here's what he writes down. How long, O oh Lord? You're going to forget me forever? How long are you going to hide your face from me? Is David being honest? How long do I have to wrestle with my thoughts day after day and have sorrow in my heart? How long will, my, will the bad guys get to win? Look on me and answer. David writes it down. Gut, level, honest. God knows already. But he writes that so he can get to this. Oh yeah, but I trust in your unfailing, loyal love. My heart better not rejoice in my temporary victories because I may not get those. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise. God, you have been good to me. See, he, he writes down what he's really struggling with so that he can remind himself how the Lord will speak to that, whether it's in this life or one day very soon. In a lament, we write down the specific issues that grieve us as specifically as possible. Then we meditate on, seek, pray about how does the Lord promise to meet the foundational needs that are under that thing? My needs for belonging, my needs to be loved, my needs to be held up, to be significant, to be cared for, whatever they are. But then there's one more thing. I have to make the choice that I am willing to, as Isaiah said, trade my sorrows in. And listen, that is a choice. Because sometimes we don't want to let go of whatever those feelings are that God can meet. Sometimes, and I know some of you understand what I'm about to say is true. Sometimes there's this weird kind of guilt that feels like 
if I let go of this, I'm betraying the one who has gone. No, no, I have to sit here and be sad for the rest of my life or I'm not being loyal to my husband, my brother, my friend. There does come a point where it becomes true that the person I am mourning would tell me, I don't want you like that. So lament, boil down what your actual specific hurts are, write them out, spend some time considering how the Lord speaks to those things, write that too, and choose with the Lord as best you can to trade your sorrow in for whatever that is that God will do, even if it's just putting your hope in the eventual healing of this, right? So I take to the Lord, to go back to the examples I gave a minute ago, I take to the Lord, God, I can't believe, here's what I'm struggling with, I can't believe you'd let my daughter die so that I can get to, is this what it felt like when your son died? God, as bad as this hurts, I know you did this on purpose. so that both my daughter and me could come be with you one day. We write down, Lord, my brother, he was my best friend. He was my rock. We write that down so that I can get to, Lord, somehow I know, because the Bible says that you are supposed to be my rock. Will, will you help me learn? Will you help me trade him in for you in a way I know he's okay with that, where he is at? He would want me to, Lord. It's, it's hard for me. I, I'm not trying to be disloyal to my brother, but I want the meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart to be pleasing in your sight. Oh, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I want to see how you can redeem, buy back, and renew this. Lord, I, I write down, Lord, I, what I'm struggling with is the regret I have because I didn't go have the conversation with that person about, I didn't make amends, I didn't whatever. That's what I'm struggling with. I write that down so I can get to, okay, Lord, I've confessed that to you. Do you forgive me for my failure? What will his answer be? What will his answer be? Okay, it's easy to answer that now. It will still be true then. Okay? And if I am forgiven, it is not my God that wants me to be controlled by guilt I no longer bear. So then God, how will you use that to empower my relationships that I do still have left? I write down, God, I'm struggling because I find myself talking to my wife before I remember she's not here and it rips my guts out. This feels like an amputation. I write that down so I can get to, and I don't know how this Maybe I get to this. God, will you just, can you tell her how much I miss her? I think that's a completely appropriate thing to ask, by the way. 
I can't tell you how God will answer. I don't know how it works. But it's completely okay to ask. I write it out. I read it to God and say, I don't know how it works, God, but will you tell her that? I write that down so I can get to, God, I really need you to be my better half. I really need you to be the one that I talk to and I know you still hear. That's lament. Death is an enemy. It is good to grieve when our enemy wins a little battle, when our enemy wins a game. Right? The grieving, that lamenting process can take her, can take us closer to the one who promises we win the war. We get to celebrate the championship at the end of this season. Okay? As believers, we get to dive into grief because we don't mourn like the rest of the world mourns. There's a bottom to that pit. So I want to encourage you, next time grief comes from you, get in there, right? Lament as needed, it might help. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so grateful that our grief has an end because our last enemy, death itself, will one day die. The Lord Jesus will throw it in the pit. God, uh, for those of us who are struggling with grief right now, um, I pray that you would help them as they lament. And for each one of us, when that day comes and it's our turn, um, help us to isolate and find those, those chief hurts and bring them to you so that you can, can speak to us about how you will answer every one of those hurts. And we thank you so much that you're a God like that and that you're our God and we're your people. And one day you'll dry every tear. We long for that day. Walk with us in the meantime, Lord, in in Christ's name. Amen. Stand up and let's finish our time together.